Welcome to The Hot Dish, comfort food for rural America. I'm Heidi Heitkamp. And I'm her baby brother, Joel Heitkamp. Oh, for God's sakes. Do we, like baby brother, you you, you look so much older than me. Can we just forget the age thing? Can we just well, do that? plastic surgery can do a lot, but let's rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, listen, I'm really excited about this episode of The Hot Dish. We're going to hear from a good friend of mine, the former governor of the great state of Montana, Steve Bullock. He and I had the honor of working together, actually, in a movie you know how we always say politics is Hollywood for ugly people? Well, Steve and I got to bridge that gap. Not sure we made the beautiful people list, but um, we definitely were involved in a project that we think has huge significance and importance. And so we're going to talk a little bit about our new movie, War Games. Then Joel and I will talk about what's happening in rural America and how rural America is looking at really significant national issues of the day. Um, you Join in, listen. Uh, we hope that you agree, disagree. Um, we hope that this conversation generates a conversation in your house. And I hope that you, when you listen to me and Joel, you realize that I am the smarter, better looking, maybe not younger sibling. Well, if that was the case, then you'd be better at pinochle. But let me just say <laughs> this. Uh, the hot dish is meant to be a conversation like we have in the rural area. Uh, the hot dish is meant to be the same as if you pulled up to any small town cafe and on the special board, it said hot beef. I mean, that's that's the whole thing of what the hot dish is about. It's about people getting together and just talking about the issues of the day, but talking about those issues in a way where it isn't condescending. It, it isn't done in a way like, I bet you didn't know this. It's done in a way where I think we're going to bring things to the table that are on your mind. And we hope that for a lot of our listeners who um, don't live in places where we live, uh, they understand that uh, the message that we're always trying to send is, yeah, that there may be some differences, but we're concerned about the same things in rural America that urban or suburban America is concerned about. And uh, people there have a lot of opinions, a lot of opinions that are worth listening to. And so thanks, Joel, for joining me to have those discussions. There's way more things that we agree on and way more things that we have in common. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. Stay tuned for more of that later in the show. But first, I want you to meet Michael Hansen. Michael is the president and CEO of Columbus Community Hospital in Columbus, Nebraska. Uh, that hospital is community-owned, not-for-profit hospital with, guess what, over 800 employees and a 207 million dollar budget. And he's doing some truly amazing things for the health of that community from expanding access to mental health services to ensuring fitness and wellness are integrated in the local health care system. So as far as my career, uh, it began uh, 42 years ago. I was going to LSU and playing baseball and I took a part-time job at uh, night in a hospital. I worked in environmental services and my job was to uh, do the terminal cleaning for the ORs and then also the OB uh, delivery rooms and things like that. So as I graduated in 1987, my boss asked me, would I like to be a director of environmental services? And uh, I said, yes. And so he promptly sent me to Los Angeles, California. So my first hospital as a director of environmental services was at Orthopedic Hospital in downtown LA. I worked there for about eight years and had responsibility for the entire L.A. region. 
Then I had my first opportunity to become a CEO in 2005. And so I worked with Mercy and we managed critical access hospitals uh, in Iowa and Nebraska. And then in 2009, I had the opportunity to come to Columbus. And the vision that the board had at that time was to really expand a small community hospital into a large uh, regional referral type hospital. And so that's what I've worked on for the past 14 years. And uh, we've more than accomplished that vision. We're a very strong community hospital that's independent. And uh, there's not too many of those around the country anymore. You know, there's about 5,000 hospitals across the country, and most of them are critical access hospitals, very small hospitals, 25 beds or less. And basically, those are in rural areas. And uh, what they do is really kind of stabilize patients and then ship them to a higher level of care, like Columbus Community Hospital. So we're kind of that tweener hospital uh, where uh, we're a large facility that does pretty much everything. We don't get into, you know, the big cases in cardiology. Uh, we don't get into brain surgery and transplants and things like that, but we do pretty much everything else. So our job is to really serve a large region. We're a full-service acute care hospital, so we provide pretty much everything in terms of services. But one of the things I'm really proud of here is our behavioral health services. When I got here in 2009, uh, it was a black hole, and we really didn't have a lot of behavioral health services. So uh, in the last 14 years that I've been here, we've added an outpatient psychiatric clinic. We have an inpatient uh, geriatric psych clinic, and we're continuing to expand our behavioral health services. Uh, and then another service line uh, that we're very proud of is our OB services. We deliver a lot of babies, uh, about 700 babies a year. And a lot of those babies are Medicaid patients. So if Medicaid reimbursement doesn't increase, you know, that would be a service line that we would look at discontinuing. And uh, those people would have to travel to the bigger cities like Omaha and Lincoln here in Nebraska. Hospitals like Columbus Community Hospital play a critical role in providing patients in rural communities with access to high-quality care close to home. I'm proud that Columbus Community Hospital has been recognized as one of the top 100 rural hospitals in the nation for the high-quality care that we provide. Even as Columbus Community Hospital succeeds, uh, there's a lot of other rural hospitals across the country that are facing serious challenges. Uh, just specifically here in Nebraska, about 51% of our hospitals are in negative margins currently. So Medicare and Medicaid uh, does not cover our costs. So we lose money on every Medicare and Medicaid patient that walks through our doors. So traditionally what hospitals have to do is cost shift that to commercial payers. So we make it up on the commercial side. And so that's how we survive. And so if the government would pay more of their fair share in terms of reimbursement, then what we could do is lower our costs to everyone so that we don't have to have that cost shift. Historically, low Medicare reimbursements makes it very difficult for hospitals and physicians to deliver on their mission to provide high-quality care to the patients we are counting on. The policies being debated in Washington could have a negative consequence for rural communities uh, and access to care. Without adequate reimbursement for their services, some hospitals may find it difficult to maintain their range of service offerings or in some situations keep their doors open at all. For example, here at Columbus Community Hospital in 2017, we had a margin of about uh, 14% uh, operating margin. That has dwindled over the years. Part of that is due to the pandemic, and part of that is due to the economy and rising costs for supplies, equipment, and labor. Uh, you know, on average, our, our costs went up about 18 to 20%, but when reimbursement rates are only going up 3 or 4%, uh, our margins are very thin right now. 
you know, we're a very strong hospital financially. And like I said, we're struggling to make a margin right now. So there's only two levers that we can really pull. One is containing our costs, which we do very well. And the other is trying to advocate for more reimbursement. So in terms of the government, uh, we need to sustain the Medicare payments that we're getting and get some decent increases in Medicare and Medicaid payments. And if that doesn't happen, then we're going to start to look at what we can do to cut services, programs, and things like that. And that would not be good for the health care of our country. Well, today on The Hot Dish, we have a real treat. One of my favorite governors of all time, um, Steve Bullock, is here with me. And Steve and I, by way of introduction, we actually got to know each other when Steve was the attorney general of um, Montana and continuing a lot of the work that we started in our cohort as attorneys general, um, being really the people's lawyer. But taking that experience and becoming governor of Montana and leading the state of Montana in ways that meet the the needs and this distinct culture of Montana, but yet advance the kinds of values that we share, certainly in the Democratic Party. But Steve and I um, are here today <laughs> not to talk about um, bemoan uh, just the fact of what's happened in our states politically, but to talk about a project that we got in, involved in uh, about a year and a half ago, not even a year, not even a year and a half ago, about a year ago when we were both invited to do some role-playing on an exercise that was um, basically designed by the the Vote Vets Foundation to kind of address the what-ifs. What if January 6th happened again, only this time we couldn't rely on the military, that the military would play a much more active role in an insurrection? Steve played the president... And I got to be his advisor, which sometimes uh, I'm sure irritated him because I'm pretty bossy as an advisor. But I want to first ask you, Governor, why did you do this project? Yeah, it it did end up, I think, a you know an incredible project to get to do, right? And what got me to do it was two things. When they called me, they said, here are some of the people that are already signed up to do this, including you, Senator. And, you know... It was both Democrats and Republicans that I had great respect for. So thought the company definitely demonstrates um, the seriousness of this. But also the underlying question, right, and the underlying issue is that in these deeply divided times, we need to do everything we can to make sure that the rule of law, the norms, the principles are preserved. And the idea behind this was that they were going to take this intense six-hour tabletop exercise and also prepare a report and say, what are some of the weaknesses that we should be thinking about, not just, well, certainly in Washington, D.C., but all across the country as we approach um, the next election cycle. So when you were doing the exercise, I think you were probably like me. Um, we're, We're basically doing this because... Number one, uh, the caliber of people who were in the room who we could learn from, but also kind of what would what advance um, better preparation in the for for a future event like January 6th. Well, lo and behold, little did we know 
These are were pretty serious people behind yeah. this documentary. <laughs> and they ended up producing a film called War Games, which was uh, previewed in Sundance. And so that was a unique experience for us. Yeah, who would uh, yeah. think someone from North Dakota and from <laughs> someone from Montana, you know, would show up among the pretty people in Sundance, for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also think it's a real opportunity to explore the themes. And and one of the things that I would say is that I think there is a difficulty that maybe uh, some of these very able filmmakers that they're having kind of advancing this film into more of the mainstream. And you might wonder why. I think it's because there is a lot of desire among the American public, certainly a segment of the American public, to forget what happened on January 6th. That That's right, Heidi. And it was interesting, as some of the audience even said, well, this really makes me unsettled and uncomfortable, right? And in part, that's the point. And why this ought to get out a lot is that this isn't some fictional exercise. You know, like as we talk today, there was a poll, I guess it was now about a month ago, that said, right, a quarter of Americans think, the FBI incited the January 6th attack, or you have the number three uh, member of the House, Elise Stefanik, not even committing to next election, like saying, we'll see if uh, this is a legal and valid election before she would actually give the winner credence or calling the January 6th, those that have been convicted as hostages. So, so it's so important because sure to have DC prepared, but for all of us to really take a deep look at where we are in this country. And you and I have both been on the losing side of elections where we were damn disappointed, but that doesn't mean, you know, you undercut, the foundation that's been here for 250 years. And I think having that discussion about both where we are and the fragility of representative democracy, and it really depends on all of us, is a conversation we need to be having. Yeah. I I think the other really difficult subject matter of this production is the discussion about radicalization in the military. And we clearly believe that one of the reasons why January 6th was not successful as a uh, pivotal event is the institution of the American military stood up for the rule of law, resisted any attempt to get involved in civilian elections. In our exercise, that's not true. And the military is no different than any other microcosm of the American public. And there's been a fair amount of radicalization. And we had two, uh, a lot of veterans involved in this effort, but two who played the, in the red cell. The, Steve and I were the That's blue right. cell, uh, representing uh, established government, trying to restore law and order and rule of law. And then the red cell was being disruptive. And both of those young men who uh, operated in the red cell were disillusioned vets who are telling us, look, pay attention. This is not too far from reality based on our experience. And so how, how much do you think that kind of raising this issue has an effect on how people see this film? I do think it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And, you know, like to step back, look, like Montana has among the highest percentage of veterans per capita. 
our service members deserve our highest praise and appreciation for what they've done for our country. But, you know, even if you look at nationally, we have 6% of the population are veterans, just about 20% of those that have been convicted for January 6th had served. And that's not disparaging our service members, but it's saying because radicalization can occur in any sort of corner, we better be damn prepared for it. And we ought to look at you know, the National Guard and the reserves. And we ought to look at law enforcement. Yeah, and, and I think the premise of the film is, what if active military saw their allegiance more to the leaders of a paramilitary group above their oath of office to the Constitution and the, uh, the commander-in-chief? And if you get a chance to see the film, which I hope you will, you know, there's, there's moments where Steve, as the, as the president, is called upon to make decisions that really will affect how the game is played. And I, I, I want to make this point because I think it's significant. The fact that you and I both came out of law enforcement in our states and you being governor, understanding the role of governors as the commander in chief of your guard, I think this thing played out differently than what the game makers thought it was going to play out. And I, I'm not sure that that would have happened that way had we been federal officials all along. No, I, I think that's right, Heidi. I mean, I think one of the, both having executive and state experience and understanding federalism, but actually having run things, you and I brought a different perspective. Well, now I was encouraged at times when you had former military leaders saying, because part of this is about like, when do you use the U.S. military against its own citizens was part of this movie. And some of them who said, look, like, we want to serve and we want to serve our country, but we don't want to get involved in things like that, yeah. right? I think one thing that we proved is that that should be used very sparingly and rarely. And the, the consistent message that you gave as our acting president was, I can deal with today, but I've got to deal with tomorrow. And the decision I'm making today is going to affect how well I can govern tomorrow. You know, you had two crises. One is the crisis of how do you maintain order in the Capitol and around states and make sure that you know, certification of elections can occur. And two is the kind of enduring crises of well, what happens the day after was interesting because we previewed this movie. Uh, we spent some time in New York with a pretty elite audience and then um, uh, spent a lot of time in Sundance in Utah talking about the film and talking about it. And I, I, I don't know that we gave people who viewed it a lot of hope. From the producer's perspective, like talking to them who aren't engaged in, you know, public policy on a regular basis, like they're hope and optimism that they came out from it is that if you have the right people around the table, like it doesn't matter, you know, Republican, Democrat, libertarian, vegetarian, who cares about <laughs> that? But if you have thoughtful people that are committed to governing and committed to our history and the 250 years of this constitutional republic, um, the right things will happen. I don't know that 
you or I provided folks a lot of great reason for optimism other than what we were saying is wake up. Right. right, <laughs> right. Uh, like, like, yeah, no, it is uncomfortable to talk about what happened, but let's make sure that we don't repeat that again. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I would also say, Steve, is for me, the high point of this movie, and I'm not just blowing smoke, was, and and just if you get a chance to see it, it's completely unscripted. I, I think we were given, what, three pages of, you know, That's background. About it. And yeah. it was this, yeah, six and hour just, exercise. And then just, you know, sit in the chair. And, and people who were in those chairs were serious. They had been in the room. They were generals who have been in the room. They were uh, Homeland Security professionals. under President yeah, Trump. FBI, yeah. uh, head of counterterrorism in FBI. And so this was a pretty aggressive, hardcore cast. You and I were kind of the two politicians in the room. <laughs> um, but at the end, what was interesting to me is in spite of all this expertise, the most optimistic moment in the end was your speech, which was oh, completely yeah. unscripted. Um, we we had a press conference after the day's event. Um, President, uh, I forget what what was your name again? Hotham. Hotham. President Hotham. Hotham. Yeah, <laughs> or as my husband says, Hotham. 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 President Hotham um, goes to a microphone <clears throat> and completely unscripted redefines American democracy. Redefines the day's event in the context of what unites us. Doesn't you know? point the finger and say, we're going to punish every one of you. Although that was really my role. I'm going to get you yeah. if you, if you go into the Capitol again. But, but to me, the optimistic part is if we have leaders um, like you portrayed there, who at the end of the day, start immediately thinking about how to unite the country, not how to continue the divisions, you will give optimism to a whole lot of people in the United States. So what motivated you? I mean, what were you thinking about when you when you made that speech? I don't know, because as you as you know, it was all unscripted, right? I mean, and one of the many great things that you did, Heidi, was as you know, somebody like this guy was the main uh, I think DOD spokesman for President Obama. Like, right? Yeah. The real deal sort of guy was trying to give talking points and things like that. And you were like, just speak from your heart. You know this. You <laughs> I know? said, I, I kind of kind of pushed him back and said, listen, the reason why this man got reelected is because of authenticity, because he is who he is. This is a time for him to be who he is, not, yeah. you know, it, a bunch of talking points. And I mean, you just like, like if there is a grand slam home run uh, in this movie, it was the one that uh, you got pitched to you. I think out of the what ballpark. I was thinking was that like, this was an intense exercise, right? Like this, like, I think everybody took it very serious. And then sort of the feelings of where are we all now? Right. And wanted to convey that to the quote unquote American people. I think the cool thing too, is you said, like, if you have a chance to see it, they're working on in April, like having screenings of this all around the country. So I think that, you know, hopefully it'll end up on some national streaming platform that you can see, but, but it really is a movie that should be a conversation prompt, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not like necessarily you walk out and say, okay, either all is good or the world's gone to hell. 
but it should be a conversation prompt about where are we yeah. as a country and as a polity. Well, I hope you'll come back because I want to talk about Montana, North Dakota politics, the politics of the Great Plains. You bet, Heidi, and sharing a hot dish with you, <laughs> I would do that any day of the week. <laughs> So, Joel, welcome back to The Hot Dish. Thanks for co-hosting with me. The news comes at you so fast. Like, I wake up in the morning and I think, oh, I need to find out what happened to that. And then I check on that and then I see five other feeds that, oh, oh, I need to find out what's going on there. I mean, it's just, how do you keep up talking to North Dakotans? I mean, it's got to be a full-time job just reading everything in the morning to get ready. Yeah. I mean, you know, from what you did, there's a routine, you know, I get up in the morning and I read the local papers. I read the local media. I, I basically go to the New York times, you check out the wall street journal and then, and this is the one you're going to shake your head at me and just say, really, Joel, one of the best sources for talk radio of what the pulse of everybody is, you know, is X or Twitter. Absolutely. If If you go to Twitter, you can find out what people are talking about pretty quick out there. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I I think there's a lot of yak yak about this as an elite site, but it also, there's a lot of looky loos people who never tweet, who just every Mm -hmm. morning go through, say, oh, okay, I need to follow up with that. I need to do this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, at full disclosure, James Lankford is a good friend of mine, the Senator from Oklahoma who just got rolled by his own party did all that work to try and help solve the border crisis and then was told not because the product was bad. Let's just point out that the border bill that he did with Cinema and Chris Murphy from Connecticut, that border bill was endorsed by Border Patrol, by the union, who is on the border all day long, who says this will help us tremendously, but yet couldn't get it done. And why do you think that is, Joel? Well, because it's an election year, because Donald Trump told them not to do it, and because they're a bunch of chicken shits. I mean, really, that's <laughs> it. I mean, the, these guys, I always define people like this. You know, Kramer came out as, and I'm talking about United States Senator Kevin Kramer from my state. You know, he, it looked like he actually took a risk. You know, he came out in national media and said, you know, it's our job to do something. I don't think that we just sit there because it's an election year and not do something and then as soon as the pressure got put on him, he ran. I mean, I, I always gauge people by this, Heidi. <laughs> you know, would I give them my keys in a tough South Dakota bar? Uh, because right <laughs> about the time. Explain that. Explain that. Well, I grew up right north of South Dakota, and the drinking age was 18. So we got into a scrap or two down there. But, but I mean, the, the reality is once the fighting started, they ran. Right. As quick as they could. They they took the keys and said, see, ya, I don't care. And, and Lankford is is still sitting in that bar, rolling around on the ground, getting the crap beat out of him. And he's yeah. his career, Heidi, will not recover from that from this. It you don't think so. I, no. I mean, you know, and I just want to tell people, I mean, you may not agree with his politics. He's very conservative, comes out of a religious background, ran the largest Bible camp in the country. And I can tell you, James Langford lives his faith. He lives what he believes. He has got great sympathy for the human tragedy that's at the border that I'm sure has been driving a lot of this work. But he also understands that we can't keep doing what we're doing and that we need to have support. But the the support within the Senate of people who will step up has just evaporated on him. 
Do you really think it, his career won't won't survive? Yeah, no, it won't. I mean, you look at states like his, they're not as bad as my home state. It's pretty red state. But you got to realize that out of the red, he just lost 65, 70%. And what's going to happen to him is not they're going to lose a Senate seat. You're going to have a Republican run against him now. And uh, before, he didn't have to worry about that. And that's happening at the state legislative level. It's going to be happening more at the congressional level. There's a reason these moderate Republicans are pulling the pin. You know, they don't want to go through a primary process. They don't want to have to fight two battles. Do you think if, if you know, looking into the future, let's say that Trump is no longer the the kind of um, physical. <laughs> No, that that tra- that train's left a long time yeah. ago, Joel. Yeah. He's too old to change who he is. I mean, I'm saying he's not the dominant figure in in uh, Republican politics. Is there room for James Langford's or Rob Portman? I just spent some time with Rob over in Ohio. Um, uh, you know, Roy Blunt. I was talking about the people that I've done uh, programs with. Roy Blunt from Missouri. Um, you know, I've been with Paul Ryan, all of these people who were really policy wonks in the Republican Party, true conservatives, they're leaving. So what is that? What does that mean for getting things done in Washington? Well, I thought Kirsten Sinema said it best, you know, when she said, you know, look, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you didn't try to solve the problem. Uh, you know what? For all you crazies, Go to Texas. You don't come to Arizona. And this is a woman that left the party that you and I come from. You know, did you think in our lifetime that you would see the son of a president become president? I didn't. I didn't think it was ever going to happen again. Like the, you know, John Adams, John Quincy Adams. I, you know, instead you got George H.W. and George W. Right? It happened. I think we're incredibly naive if we don't realize that it's the last name Trump. And if Donnie Jr., as dumb as what he is, wants to be active in politics, once the old man's in a nursing home, he'll be there. I mean, this this is going to go on for a while. This is going to go. I mean, this is a guy that I don't think can tie his shoes. But you watch. He's going to be a political force. The GOP in our lifetime will never, ever, ever be the same. Wow. You know, I, I mean, like I said, I just... Um, I just feel for James. I feel for anyone who wants to get things done. But let's let's talk a little bit about where things are in rural America. And I'm looking at numbers. I look at numbers all the time politically. And Democrats don't seem to be gaining much in rural America. I mean, in, in spite of what, what one would argue, massive investments, whether it's in the farm bill, whether it is in, uh, you know, Trump's trade money that he sent back after he disrupted trade, whether it is in infrastructure, there's just never been an administration that has put as many resources into rural America. And there's been absolutely no sense that that has moved the political needle at all. So when do they quit doing it? I mean, <laughs> I I'm, I'm serious about that. When did when did Democrats quit placating the the rural Republicans? And you know, look at the farm bill, Heidi. 
I mean, I like the farm bill. I live here. Ag drives my economy. It basically makes me a living. I'm not trying to talk down farmers as much as what I'm trying to talk practical here in terms of politics. If you look at uh, the farm bill, you know, this this partnership was made between SNAP or food stamps or whatever you want to call it and, and the ag bill in terms of crop insurance, in terms of protecting sugar. I mean, nobody is subsidized more than the United States farmer. Period. Okay, so if you're the Democrats and you continue to cut these deals in this bill because you can get more for folks with with uh, SNAP, you know what? At, at what point don't you, as urban Democrats, say shove it? You know, we can do this without you. We, we have the power. There's more people here from an urban standpoint. Do you really believe any of the? There's less votes in the rural area. I know there's two senators from each state, but do you really think that they're not going to fund SNAP? If I were the United States farmer, I would be the most worried that they divide that legislation. And when they do that, if they do that as Democrats from a strategic standpoint, what's going to end up happening is the rural Republicans are not going to be able to deliver. It, it's, and, it's, and then it's, the Heidi Heitkamps it, and the Colin Petersons are back in, back in the game. You, you know, what's really interesting when you say that, Joel, if you talk to so many farmers, they're like, we just need to separate that nutrition yeah. title from the, and you're like, dude, you have no idea. Uh, and this was a, a compromise that Bob Dole did with George McGovern and George McGovern and Bob Dole did farmers in America a huge favor when they linked nutrition to the farm bill. And Well, you know, I mean, you can, let, let's be honest, those farmers you just described, weren't the ones that I was cheating off of, so I stayed eligible for football, right? <laughs> I mean, those those are the farmers that are a quarter bubble from a level, but they yeah. believe it. I mean, they do. They believe it. It's out there. And so, you know, when, when you look at state legislatures, when I first got into the state Senate in North Dakota, we were one vote shy of the majority. Right now, there's four out of, out of 47, four North Dakota state senators that are Democrats. Now, you got to ask yourself why. If you look at the Republicans, they don't have anybody left to beat up in these state legislatures in these rural areas. And so what they're doing is, you know, the, the ultra-Trumper MAGAs are now running against the establishment Republicans. And I can show you how it's happening on a local level as much as what you described it happening on a national level. I mean, we are going to be led for a while by the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world until the Democrats get get smarter on how to deal with this stuff. I mean, it's it Democrats, I think, are getting way better in Congress. I think they are. I think they've got themselves a leader that is very strategic. When you can pull a guy out in a hospital gown and say, <laughs> I need your vote, you kick butt. But but that being said, where they're not strategic yet. Uh, enough and not hard and mean enough yet is in elections. Yeah, you know it's one thing to be great on that Senate or that House floor, but when it comes to the election, you got to be pit bull mean. So let's wrap it up and say let's let's look into the next couple weeks. And you know it's Valentine's Day, so we should say something nice about our respective spouses. Did what did you get Sue for Valentine's Day? We're Joel. going on a cruise. Yeah, that is that was for your anniversary. You're rolling that in. Also, the Christmas present. What else does it count for? Well, uh, we're getting a, going on a cruise. Each day should count as one, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the the reality is 
Sue and I are very realistic. We've been married for for 40 years, and I'd say 32 of those were happy. (laughs) You're such a a jerk. (laughs) I mean, you know, she'd be the one that would say about 28. But yeah, I mean... You know the truth is we're 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 all happy, and yeah. not many people are like that. And so, you know, we can give each other crap, and and still, that that to me is what what makes a Valentine's Day more important than buying some ring or whatever or flowers you know? or whatever. You know, it's right. the fact. I mean, my daughter doesn't celebrate uh, Valentine's Day because it's all been made up by Hallmark. It's like she was oh, right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but I mean, still. right. I like That's Hallmark. Okay. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> It, it is a very commercialized oh, deal, right? On. I mean, but still, it's a it's well. A okay, what are you getting, Darwin? Nothing. We never exactly. Get <laughs> Hold on a second, folks. Let's see if she falls off that pedestal or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Joel. Thanks for joining me on the hot dish. Um, we'll live to fight another day. We'll see how all of this plays out, but. You know, the dysfunction that is Washington, D.C., everybody looks at that. Let me tell you, it has weaved its way and maybe bubbled up uh, from the bottom. And so if you think that state houses are any better, you probably haven't been paying attention to what's happening in your state. Well, and one last thing, if you look at the big success that Biden did have over the last couple of weeks, it was when he stood there with the very people I'm attempting to describe here guys you don't piss with. And that's United Auto Workers. Yeah. And that was a huge win for Joe Biden. It wasn't a rubber stamp. It was a, hey, you come, you earn it, right? Yep. And so if if there's anything to be learned about democratic politics, it's what happened with the United Auto Workers. Show up. Show up, work, punch. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. You bet. Well, I mean, I always learn so little when I talk to you, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, I think that's part of the problem. You know, the, the, the art of doing well in life is the art of listening, but we'll get you there. You know what? That was fun. I hope you thought so. Uh, you know, let us know what you think and give us suggestions for what you'd like us to talk about. Send us an email at podcast at onecountryproject.com. You know, and thanks for joining us. Uh, You don't have to listen, uh, but you did. I hope you enjoyed it. I do uh, because it's a conversation that I wish we were all having together, Heidi. Not only that, but, you know, we we do this because we don't think that people hear enough from the rural perspective. We draw big differences, and sometimes those differences aren't big. Sometimes they are. And so that's why we hope that you will learn more about what's happening in rural America by checking out OneCountryProject.com and find out the work that we're doing to try and unite this country across regional divides. We'll be back in two more weeks with more Hot Dish Comfort Food for Rural America.